Now we're reading again in the Gospel according to Mark, and uh, it's the passages, Mark chapter 5, which you will find on page 1007 in the church Bible, if you have one, Mark chapter 5 and from verse 21, and uh, you should be able to remember the number, it ends in 007. And uh, so this is the third in our little trilogy of studies in this section in Mark's gospel after Jesus' teaching beside the sea. Uh, we began a couple of Sundays ago in chapter 4 and verse 35, and uh, now we're at the third section uh, in this little section in Mark's gospel. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. But she'd heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him, and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion? and weeping. The child is not dead, 
but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. We've been thinking about this section in Mark's Gospel as three related portraits of the Lord Jesus kind of thing that you might see in a museum, a medieval altarpiece with three biblical stories that somehow or another are connected to one another. And we've taken as a connecting link in this little trilogy the words of Mark 4 verse 36. Uh, The disciples took Jesus just as he was. And what we've been exploring in these three stories is That's a wonderful description of what it means to become a Christian and to be a Christian. You take Jesus just as He is, just as He presents Himself to you, but invariably you discover that He isn't what you thought Him to be. And there is this tremendously important lesson for us that Jesus is teaching all of these people that we can never exactly second guess what Jesus is going to do. And as we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, more and more as we've been discovering in this section, more and more we discover more and more about who Jesus really is. And today we've come to the third, and by definition, since this is a trilogy, the last of these passages with which many of us probably have been familiar from childhood. These are two big stories in the Sunday school curricula of churches, aren't they? But the interesting thing is, if my memory serves me well, these stories tend to be taught as though they had nothing whatsoever to do with each other. But when you read them here in Mark and also in Matthew and Luke where the same narrative occurs, you see that these are not two stories. These, these are actually two parts of the one story. And Mark underlines that by linking them together. The most obvious link is what? It's the number 12. Jairus' daughter, as we learn in verse 45, I think, has been living for 12 years. She's on the brink in Jewish terms of moving into kind of the beginnings of adult life. And the woman with the issue of blood, well, she's had an issue of blood for 12 years. If you were making a movie out of this, so you had technological facilities that Mark didn't have, you would begin this narrative probably with a split screen, wouldn't you? 
and maybe a few photographs or, or little home movies of, on the one hand, Jairus's daughter, their only child, a little girl in father's arms, the ruler of the synagogue, and then maybe something about her growing up, and then as she approaches 12 years old, she, she goes into decline, and uh, it's just at that point that Jesus enters the story. But then this woman who presumably is somewhere in her 20s, maybe, maybe in her 30s, uh, you see her bright and strong 12 years ago, and then you see this decline. You see her going to every physician under the sun, bankrupting herself in the process, and, and now she's probably looking 10 years older than all of her peers. And uh, as you see the, the two sides of the split screen, you can, you can almost see them, each of them coming closer to Jesus. So, that this is not really a story about Jairus's daughter because uh, she actually only appears at the end. And it's not ultimately a story about this woman because she appears in the middle. It's really about Jesus. It's about what we discover when we take Jesus just as He is. And what is so marvelous about this is that not only are these women linked together, they're both women, they, they, the number 12 is significant for both of them, but they're also linked together by a series of contrasts. The girl's father is the ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum. Uh, the woman with the, with the, with the issue of blood uh, that, that rendered you ritually unclean, and there's a fairly decent chance that she was never in the synagogue. Uh, Jairus is happily married, apparently, and, and because of her condition, which rendered her unclean, highly likely that this woman had lived all these 12 years on her own. By definition, as the ruler of the synagogue, Jairus is one of the well-off people in town. And this woman is now bankrupt. She's bankrupted herself, trying to get healed, and instead she's worse. So something in common, and a whole series of different contrasts that actually at the end of the day point out the wonder and sufficiency of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in the middle, Mark is saying just keep your eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus and see what He is doing. As I say, that the, the, the story is framed within the experience of Jairus and then picks up this woman. And the focus is on faith in Jesus. And you'll notice how that expression comes together in both of their lives when Jesus says to the woman, your faith has made you well, and then to the panic in Jairus, don't be afraid, only believe. So, fix your eyes on Jesus and learn what it means to have faith in Jesus. And I want us, first of all, to notice, therefore, the way in which Jesus encourages Jairus' faith. 
Um, very clearly, in verse 23, uh, there, is, there is a faith in Jairus that Jesus is able to heal his daughter. He implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Now, notice, please, this is not what people call blind faith. This is faith rooted in evidence. And if at your leisure you read through Mark's gospel from the beginning, you realize that Jesus has apparently moved to the region of Capernaum, and uh, before you get into the story of the stilling of the storm, there are five incidents of Jesus doing mighty works in Capernaum and doing wonderful healings in Capernaum, even setting free a man in the synagogue of which this father, Jairus, was the ruler. So, this is not blind faith. There is, nothing, there is no such thing in the Bible as blind faith. Only somebody ignorant of the Bible would ever imagine that what Christians exercise is blind faith. No, what Jesus is encouraging in Jairus is a faith, a trust that is based on who he is and on what he can do. And who knows but what this little girl in her weakness had maybe said to Jairus, Daddy, if only Jesus, remember what Jesus did in the synagogue, Daddy? If only Jesus were here, he could heal me. I want you to notice something else about this faith that Jesus encourages First of all, it's not blind faith. And secondly, listen very carefully to this. Faith in Jesus is not simply a choice you can make. You cannot simply decide to have faith in Jesus. Now, that's very humbling, but it's, it's actually very obvious you cannot trust someone who has not proven himself to you to be trustworthy in such a way that he commands your trust, that you cannot do anything else but believe in him. You may be, you may be called up before the judge, and uh, you may use, or your lawyer may use all kinds of arguments but if, if, if you've got a true judge, there is nothing you can do to believe that this judge will hand down a wrong sentence. And it's, hey, what, what is the first principle of thinking about marrying somebody? It's, can I trust them? And from time to time, you meet men or women who will eventually tell you, I knew I couldn't trust him. I knew I couldn't trust him. I decided I was going to trust him, but you can't just decide you're going to trust a person. 
It's who that person is that commands your trust. And then when that, when that takes place, then you have a decision to make. And that decision is, am I going to entrust myself to them? And that's the question here. Jesus has given every reason for Jairus to believe that Jesus can heal his daughter. And now he's doing something to encourage Jairus to move from trusting him to entrusting himself to him. And we've got this beautiful little phrase, haven't we? And so Jesus went with him. That's what happens when you entrust yourself to Jesus. Jesus goes with you. So Jesus encourages Jairus' faith. But the second thing you'll notice, and uh, you notice this a lot with Jesus, we've already seen it with Jesus, Jesus tests the faith that he has just encouraged. Now we saw this in the storm at sea, Jesus says, where was your faith? He was testing their faith. We saw it with the, the demoniac on the other side of the Sea of Galilee when he says, I want to go with you, Jesus. I trust you, and I want to go with you. And Jesus says, if you really trust me, you'll do what I say. Stay at home and tell people the great things the Lord has done for you. And he's testing the reality of his faith in order to bring it to a, a, a new level. And uh, that's exactly what happens here. Um, any of you who have studied philosophy or ethics or read about it will know about the great ethical problem that's sometimes called the trolley problem. So you're a bus driver. You're driving down a hill. The bus goes out of control. You see a seven-year-old child on that side of the road and a 50-year-old woman crippled on that side of the road. And you know you can turn the wheel once, but you're going to kill one or the other of them. So who are you going to save? And it looks from the outside as though there's a trolley problem here. There's this, there's this man who's desperate for his daughter to be healed because she is on the point of death. And there's this probably slightly shriveled up looking lady of uncertain years. And the interesting thing is she is she she's not gonna die on this day. So which do you choose? It's obvious, isn't it? Not only so, but you feel, you feel something has happened to you that tells you somebody has been healed. What do you do? You go on and you... But you don't if you're Jesus. Now, friends, put yourself in Jairus' position. Any of you ever taken your child to the emergency room? And uh, the physicians know your child's not dying, but you feel as though your child is dying. Somebody else comes in and the doctor leaves, so I've got to go in. Some of you know what that's like. So, so put yourself in Jairus' position. 
Why does Jesus do this to Jairus? He can come back and find out about the woman. She obviously lives in the Capernaum area. Jesus lives in the Capernaum area. Well, because he wants to test Jairus' faith. Now listen, he wants to test his faith in order to strengthen his faith. But that's not what I would tell Jesus to do. How do I know that? Because that's not what the disciples told Jesus to do. They're saying, Jesus, this is ridiculous. You can almost see, you know, you can almost see Peter, who is behind Mark's gospel, incidentally. These, the church has understood almost from the beginning, these are Peter's memoirs, which is why they're so easy to turn into the first person singular. You can almost see Peter, come on, Jesus. This is nonsense. You're in a crowd. What are you fussing about? Who touched you? And Jairus, it's like, you know, suddenly he's beside Jesus, and then he's, he's on the outside of the crowd, and nobody cares except they're all clamoring, and, and uh, Jesus says, no. Time out. Stop. I know someone touched me because I felt power go out of me. It's amazing, isn't it? Incidentally, one of the things that it makes clear is that this healing came right out of Jesus. But the woman doesn't know that yet, which is why Jesus stops, presumably, because he's got something to teach this woman, and the wonderful thing is he's also got something to teach this man. So he stops. He, he, I remember somebody telling me about their preacher that before he began the sermon, he would just stand there for a minute, and he would kind of look around the congregation and, and uh, you know, hey, you've got, you got a minister like that, that's scary. <laughs> because, uh, you know, that's like going to see the headmaster, isn't it? He, you know, he's, and, and the, the sins of the past week, you know, and Jesus looks around the crowd, he says, no, no. Somebody touched me. I, I sensed power going out from me. And friends, this is so embarrassing. I, I, I wouldn't do this. This must have been mortifying for this woman. And she comes, we're told, trembling. Like, think about how embarrassing it's been for, for Mrs. Merkel to be seen trembling in public a couple of times. And, you know, who knows, who knows Mrs. Merkel? Oh, you know, presumably Mr. Merkel and a few other people. Everybody probably knew this woman. And she comes trembling before Jesus and in fear. And she, she falls down before him. And she tells him the whole truth. It, I mean, it's, it, it's passing beautiful, isn't it? It's like a description of what happens when you become a Christian. You come in fear and trembling because of your need, and uh, you tell him everything. I think that must mean that she also either volunteered it or Jesus drew it out of her. How, how long has this been going on? Twelve years. Twelve years. 
Why has he done this? Well, clearly, you know, you probably were taught this in Sunday school when this was taught to you as an isolated story. Jesus did this to help this woman understand that it was not touching his garment that healed him, but the faith that Jesus could heal him, heal her. And he says, daughter, isn't that beautiful? Daughter. It's unspeakable because it's really, it's really saying to this woman who has been probably almost excommunicated from the, the religious community because of the, of the ritual uncleanness that attached to her condition, it, it's really saying, I'm welcoming you into the family because your faith has healed you. Now, people appear, and they say to Jairus, your daughter's dead, don't bother him any longer. And you'll notice from a footnote, either Jesus overhears this, or Jesus hears it. It amounts to the same thing, and he responds. Now, just put these two things together now, because these two stories are really meeting in the middle in Jesus. Your faith has healed you. And then, so marvelously to Jairus, Jairus, do not fear. He's just seen fear, fear and trembling as she's come to him. Her faith has saved her. Here is, here is Jairus. He's beside himself, and Jesus says, don't, don't be afraid, Jairus. Trust me. You see what he's done? He's not only, he's not only tested Jairus's faith, but he's... he's he strengthened Jairus' faith. He said to Jairus, as it were, look, you have had the same evidence to believe me that your daughter had to believe me that I am able to save her, and I've just given you another evidence right in front of your eyes, a glorious evidence, because you, he probably knew this woman. It's not a big place, Capernaum. It's only got one synagogue, Capernaum. And uh, he's saying, you don't need to be afraid either. You don't need to tremble either, Jairus. Just, just trust me. And so he encourages Jairus' faith, and he tests Jairus' faith, and he wonderfully strengthens Jairus' faith. It's so Beautiful. Remember how Isaiah puts it, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind has stayed on you because he trusts in you. Faint not nor fear, says the hymn writer, his arm is near. He changes not, and thou art dear. Only believe, and thou shalt see that Christ is all in all to thee. And then, of course, as the narrative goes on, Jesus, who has encouraged and tested and strengthened Jairus' faith, now satisfies Jairus' faith. What a roller coaster ride it is, but it's telling you something about life with Jesus. It's a roller coaster ride. 
He'll take you to places you don't want to go. He'll do things in your life you'd rather he didn't do. He'll even bring into your life frustration because he wants to strengthen you. That's how he strengthens faith, by challenging faith. But there's something here in this narrative that's always struck me as being one of the darkest moments in Mark's gospel. Because as Jesus arrives at the home, there's this, there's this commotion, which is entirely external, incidentally. This isn't, this isn't sincere mourning. This is rented mourning. That was the tradition. And Jesus wants nothing to do with it, and He speaks to them. He says, listen, she is not dead. She is only sleeping. Why are you making this commotion? And it's the words in verse 40 that are so dark. They laughed at him. One, one could almost translate this, they laughed him down. Have you experienced that? You know, maybe children, they say, can be cruel. Laughing down. What makes laughing down? And here is Jesus who has, who has just brought a new life to this dear woman and brought her into the community and uh, made her clean by, in a sense, taking himself her uncleanness, showing to Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue in which Moses was read every Sabbath day, that what the law could not do because it was weak through the sin of our flesh, God has done by sending His own Son in the likeness of the flesh of sin and for sin, condemning sin in the flesh, that, the, that what the law requires might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And they despise Him. It's, it's unspeakable. They despise Him. And He sends them all away. This is the reason why the passage ends the way it does. These, these unbelieving despisers of Jesus will not be given the opportunity to despise Him more by saying, well, He said she wasn't really dead. Jesus, friends, does not cast His perils before pigs. We know that because He taught His followers not to do that, didn't He, in the Sermon on the Mount. And these are pigs, snorting, demeaning, despising Jesus. Jesus, you are small. We are big. We can dominate you. Then if you want to do that, you will never see my glory. And just as the woman had very daringly, in a sense, made Jesus unclean so that she would become clean, Jesus makes himself unclean in order that this little girl, touching a dead body, rendered you unclean. And you'll notice that Jesus doesn't just speak, but he took her by the hand and spoke to her. It's interesting, isn't it, that um, Jesus, this is like Lazarus, isn't it? Jesus raised the dead by speaking to them. It's another indication of, look who Jesus is, because just as He was, so He is. 
This is how Jesus raises spiritually dead men and women into life. It's a miracle. It's mysterious. We hear His voice, and we find ourselves being raised into life. And He takes our hand. It's interesting. Perhaps it's just coincidental that the two words that are used for the resurrection of Jesus in the rest of Mark's gospel are both used in this context, that he says to her, arise, and she rose. It's almost as though the whole gospel is here. You know, the psalm that is most frequently used in the New Testament in connection with Jesus' saving work on the cross is Psalm 69. Probably not a very familiar psalm, but if you, if you do the mathematics, you'll discover that's the psalm that is most frequently used in terms of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And it's a very interesting psalm because of the, of the way in which it moves. It moves from a water ordeal through that water ordeal becoming a conflict with the powers of darkness. And then it moves on to uh, the, 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 the way in which the, the psalmist becomes Lord over, the, over sickness and death and eventually rises up on the other side. And it's almost as though that pattern of what Jesus has come into the world to do is is embedded like background music into this trilogy of stories. Jesus has, Jesus has gone through a water ordeal. He's conflicted with the powers of darkness. He's overcome sickness and death, and He's shown His resurrection power, and uh, that's all that He has come into the world to do. It's almost as though Mark is is pointing us forwards to His great message, which is what's going to happen on the cross. And it's because of what Jesus will do on the cross that He does this here for this young girl and this dear lady who has been sick for so long. Like so many of Jesus' miracles, it's also an acted parable of the gospel. And as I say, you know, from very early on in the history of the Christian church, we, we are told that, that Mark, who was Peter's disciple, he was called stubby-fingered because apparently his fingers seemed to be out of all proportion to the size of his body. And we know that Mark was with Peter, and he wrote down Peter's memoirs. And you can almost hear Peter saying at the beginning of this trilogy of stories that Jesus said to us, let's go across to the other side, and leaving the crowd, He, he took us with them just as He was. And we began wondering, well, who is He? And He began to answer that question for us so that as we took Him as He was, we would be able to discover who He really is.
who he really is. And that's the message, isn't it? It's the message of these three narratives. It's the message of Mark's gospel. In a way, it's the message of the, of the whole of the New Testament to quote our beloved minister for another 12 hours, David Robertson's favorite writer, John Calvin. This is Jesus clothed in the garments of the gospel. And Mark is saying, Peter is saying, you can almost hear Peter preaching this sermon, doubtless better and doubtless in a different language. I discovered who he really is. And I would follow him through anything. Wherever he leads me now, I want to go. Well, um, you may be in the storm. You, you, you may be plagued by the powers of darkness. You may be, you may be discouraged because of sickness. You, you may be facing crisis. Here's the big lesson. Jesus does not do exactly the same thing in everybody's life. There were lots of people he didn't heal. There were presumably storms in the Sea of Galilee that he didn't calm. There were demoniacs that perhaps he didn't exercise. But the message is this. No matter what he's doing in my life, he is still the same Jesus. And that was the other verse we thought about at the beginning, isn't it? Hebrews 13, verse 8. Just as he was yesterday, and this is yesterday, he is the same today and forever. So, trust him with everything, for everything, for all time. And you will discover who he really is. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent a Savior to us who is Christ the Lord. And we thank you that your Word has so much to teach us about him and that we have so much to learn about him. We thank you that he seems to us to be far greater now than he seemed when we first trusted him. We thank you that you've given us in our church family here, so many different experiences of who Jesus is for his people, that we're able to encourage one another, just like Peter encouraged Mark and Mark encouraged us. And we pray today that you would fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus. And on a day when we are conscious that we are, we are, a, we are a flock without a a chief under-shepherd. We pray that we may know that our Lord Jesus, the chief shepherd, will feed us and lead us in every way. So help us to trust Him, we ask in His name. Amen.